Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. I like to release an older episode as a rebroadcast for people who haven't been listening for quite as long. And I like to do it especially around the holidays because, you know, people have weird schedules. Listenership is more scattered around. But I was thinking, what would be a good one as we enter the new year? I think a lot of us are thinking about our lives Um, The last year, the next year, what are some habits we'd like to form, some habits we'd like to kick? And this episode seemed like a good fit. It's very research and science-based, and yet obviously focused on a life of faith. So I hope you enjoy. To briefly introduce my two guests this week, Brad is a Protestant professor of sociology at the University of Connecticut, where he studies American Christianity, spirituality, and well-being. Sophia is a Catholic PhD student at Cambridge studying child neurodevelopment. Also, she's Brad's goddaughter, which makes for a lovely interplay, a little conversational interplay between the two of them. So why care about habits and virtue? Aren't these old-fashioned notions? Well, habits are very closely linked to positive change of all sorts. And if there is one thing missing, at least in our public life these days, virtue might top that list. Uh, being knee-deep in election politics is a hourly reminder of our lack of public virtue. Prayer, to me, seems to interact with both of those concepts regularly, 
And I always am wondering, what's the science behind each of these things? What do we know and with how much confidence? So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did with Brad and Sophia. Bradley Wright, Sophia Carosa. This is going to be a very fun conversation. I really don't know where it's going. We have a list of maybe seven to 10 topics that we will hit as appropriate and as the casual conversation leads us. But let's start with some very basic background here. Sophia, let's start with you. Please just describe the work that you do. Thanks, Dan. And thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to uh, have a conversation with you today and hopefully share some of my background with your listeners. So I'm a graduate student at Cambridge at the moment where I study developmental neuroscience. I'm really interested in the way that trauma affects the developing brain. This past year, I was looking at infant development and the mother-child relationship, but I'll be starting my PhD next year and looking specifically at adolescence. But I'm American, as you can tell from the accent, uh, born and raised in Indiana, and I graduated from the University of Notre Dame. So I'm a practicing Catholic, and I majored in theology as well in undergrad before going on to, to graduate school. You are an ideal candidate for a You Have Permission podcast guest with that background. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, And Bradley, tell us about your work. So I'm a professor of sociology at the University of Connecticut. And over the last 25 years or so, I've studied behavior change in different contexts, homelessness, crime, religion. I currently am focusing on spirituality and well-being. And I like field experiments a lot. I sort of have gravitated in that direction. So that's been my focus for the last five years or so. Currently, I'm booting up a project on issues of purpose, and that's following some work that I've been doing on just how people change their behavior. Fantastic. The focus on how people actually change makes you also a perfect guest on the You Have Permission (laughs) podcast. People know who listen a lot that I'm pretty short on ideology and pretty long on what works. What are we doing here? And then the relationship between the two of you is, is worth noting. Sophia, you are Bradley's niece and goddaughter. I asked Bradley about the Catholic Protestant thing. He told me your mom, his sister, they were raised Catholic with her, it stuck and with Bradley, it didn't. So that's why Bradley, you're Protestant. How else would you self-describe? Uh, an evangelical mutt. Evangelical so mutt. Okay. Within evangelicalism, I'm very ecumenical. I'm very comfortable with a lot of different expressions of it. So uh, charismatic and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Before we get nerdy, which is what we will spend most of the time being, I want to get a little affective, a little autobiographical. So I would like from each of you one story, anecdote, description, something from early in your life. Eventually, we're going to come around to this conver- this question of habits. I don't know if that should be the title because we haven't really gotten there yet, but we're aiming for habits. That's where all of this stuff sort of coalesces. So to start, what was a habit in your childhood or earlier in your life that has shown dividends as you've gotten older, something related maybe to spirituality, but really just anything like that. I just want to kind of start in the personal realm. So as a good professor, I'm going to change the question and uh, talk about habit-related behavior that aren't really habits themselves. That's fine. So when I was growing up, my family moved around a ton, like every year. It was crazy. Different countries, different states, and so forth. And one thing I noticed was I would become a different person with each move. And then I would become a different person when we'd switch schools 
So in middle school, we had a couple moves where I was like, I mean, middle school's a disaster anyway. And mine was like a train wreck of a disaster. Then we got to a high school and it's like, I made friends. And then I became real popular. And then I went to college and I made a bunch of friends. I got real popular. Then I moved somewhere else. And then I wasn't popular and like I couldn't buy a friend. And I thought, how in the world am I such a different person simply by changing my address? And that, as well as some other experiences, I think got me thinking about social psychology, sociology, what I'm doing now. The reason why that's related to habits is so much, you know, habits are, are located in our environment. And so I think by changing the environment, I changed my behavior, which changed me. And, and so in thinking about it, that's sort of my early experience as opposed to one you know, specific behavior that's carried on. That makes me think of, you know, the very well-founded research that, you know, who a teenager hangs out with and what those friends do is the single best predictor of what that teenager will do. Now, you can always ask, well, what drew them to that group of friends? And sometimes that is all but inevitable, given someone's experience, and sometimes it's not. One thing could happen one way or the other, and you might go to this other group of friends. But once you get there, once you're in that social structure, well, you're going to start to dress like them. You're going to start to do the things. If they smoke, you're going to start smoking. If they drink, you're going to start drinking. If they don't drink, you might stop drinking, right? Like, there is immense power in the group upon the individual, but not just the group, as you're saying, it's also other, other parts of one's atmosphere that are not necessarily other persons. That's really interesting. Sophia, what do you got? If you, did you think of something? Yeah. So I, similarly, it's, it's not exactly one discrete habit, but it's more a habitual pattern of life. So I was raised in the Catholic church and we work with a liturgical calendar that has regular variations or fluctuations in fasting and feasting. And I think that that's been a really important part of shaping my approach to growth in my own life, because you have regular cycles of ascetic practices or more devotional prayer, and then it'll be followed by a time of fasting and celebration with friends and family. And this can be in the course of a given week where Sunday is your day of rest and celebration and Friday is your day of mortification. But it's also over the course of the year, you know, as the, the days are getting shorter throughout my childhood, you know, that was a time when we would spend more time in prayer and say, say no to more of the simple joys of life so that when Christmas does arrive, there is this real tangible sense of, of the joy of a presence that comes into your life. And I think that's really important, especially for children, but really for all of us, because we are fundamentally embodied. I know we're not supposed to nerd out yet, but because the human person is a continuum of mind and body, we cannot disregard that there's a really big effect of these sorts of practices on shaping your spiritual life. So I think now I have an appreciation for the way that my life may speed up at times or slow down at others or have more of a spiritual shift or more of a professional focus at times. And um, I think that's a habit that was really shaped by my early environment. It makes me think of, well, Lent as well, in terms of like, you have this season of sort of reduced, uh, ideally sort of reduced stimuli and to make space for other things. It also makes me think of Islam. Uh, we just finished watching the second season of the Hulu show Rami, which is, I've been talking about it in every episode now. I probably should stop. I loved it so much. But there's a Ramadan episode, and there are multiple episodes about the five times daily prayer, or it, it comes in to these episodes all the time. And it just always makes me think of how how formative that is. It just has to be. For Muslims who do the, the five times daily prayer, just looking back at their lives, I bet they could point to just massive 
changes in what doing that over decades would 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 do to your brain, to your body. Of course, as you said, the continuum of the two are our, our brains are part of our bodies. I don't know where you come down on immaterial souls, but my take is that there's nothing about us that is immaterial, although there is value that is immaterial, but not there's no like I solved Descartes problem by just saying he's wrong. Uh, we are <laughs> as while we're alive here, I think we are physical objects that our physicality, whatever it is in our brain, allows us to connect to God, et cetera, et cetera. So, OK, that's a good way in. Let's talk about habits and let's we can get fully nerdy now. So, Sophia, let's let me let me ask you this just from your perspective, especially with this kind of neuroscience background and brain development background. How do you think of a habit? Like what is a habit in sort of your lingo? So I would describe any habitual action as a behavior or a thought that is mediated by a consolidated neural network and driven by neural firing in the striatum, which is where it's a frontal brain region where your habits are located. So there are two adjacent regions. And when you form a habit, the circuit activity shifts so that it's no longer driven by goal-directed actions, but become something that's more, you know, we might describe it as instinctive. That's not the language neuroscientists would use because that that describes something else, but um, where you don't need to have the reward or the outcome in mind for it to come to you as something that you should or or will do. Um, So that's how we describe it in terms of neuroscience. And we tend to study it in rodent models because they're very easy to train and they have very similar neural circuitry, interestingly enough. Uh, But, you know, a lot of the findings really have had a lot of positive outcomes for people who are trying to improve their habits, breaking negative ones or building positive ones. So you just described it neurologically, but a way you might describe it cognitively would be the the system one, system two differential. Mm-hmm. So this is Daniel Kahneman's language or Jonathan Haidt's writer and the elephant maps fairly well onto this. These are things that have come up before on the podcast, depending on which episodes people have listened to. But system one being the sort of automatic, reflexive, does not require a lot of mental energy, does not require deliberation. It's something that we can do very easily. I, I always describe it as if I'm having a difficult conversation with you, you ask me a complex question while I'm driving us somewhere. My system two is processing the question, sifting through my memories, trying to reason about it. My system one is just driving the car and I don't need to do anything to keep driving it. It has become a habit. I know when to press the accelerator and the gas. It's not like when I first learned to drive the car where I got so excited the first time I did it right. As you mentioned, the rewards or the punishments or uh, the <laughs> my my only two accidents were all in my first year of driving. So the punishments of I did that wrong and I hit this person's bumper and now I will have these consequences or whatever. Now I'm 36. I'm just driving. I don't need rewards or punishments. It's just a habit for me. I know how to do what I'm doing. And so, yeah, that's so cool to, to hear about that in the brain. It actually migrates regions it goes from a conscious, deliberative choice. We have to think about it. We got to get ourselves to do it. Now it's happening in this other region, and it's it's almost automatic. So your point is taken, and I think I just dumbed it down for us enough from the substratum, you know, whatever kind of language that was. So Bradley, as a social scientist or sociologist, any other flavor you want to add to that sort of definition of habit, or is there 
a different angle? So when social scientists talk about it, and you alluded to it before, we tend to focus on how it works at the experiential level. So we think in terms of there being a cue, a behavior and reward, and that's sort of a a classic habit cycle, and you start to connect them. So you start doing the the behavior automatically. Uh, In terms of a different angle, I tend to think of habits as a really cool strategic tool. It's almost like you have a bunch of stuff you want to carry and you have a mule. And if you can put the stuff on the mule, you can just carry a lot more stuff. And if you can offload behavior strategically, intentionally onto a habit, then suddenly you get it at a very low cost. You kind of have to keep an eye on the mule periodically, but you're not, it's not on your shoulders. So you can put other stuff on your shoulders. So that would be uh, how I engage it. Yeah. In, in terms of having to keep your eye on the mule. So I recently did some physical therapy for my back. Having a son, Sophia, we, you didn't hear this, but we just had our first child five and a half months ago. Congrats. Thank you. And my back was already bad and then just made worse by all these weird lifting motions and, you know, all kinds of stuff. None of the the diaper place is not at a good height for me. I'm too tall. So, you know, all this stuff, right? So I'm going to physical therapy. And while I'm in physical therapy, I'm in the habit. I go twice a week. I'm thinking about going. I have these exercises that I have to keep in mind to do throughout the week. But then a couple of weeks ago, they stop. I don't, I don't go anymore. And now I have to fully self-motivate to do the exercises again because no one's there in person making me do them. And so in some sense, I did not get far enough to where those were habitual in the kind of way that I would have wanted them to be. So I was, I had partially offloaded onto the mule, mostly by physically having to show up at the physical therapy office. That was the mule. And now I got to actually kind of learn to load it onto the mule my own self. And I am frankly struggling with it. And my back is, is, it's uh, downgraded slightly. And now I'm finding myself at the point where like, I really have to make these, this habit work so that I don't have a shitty back for the entirety of my tenure as a father. Let's talk about self-control. So self-control is a phrase that a lot of Westerners don't like. We associate it with following rules or some bad religious teachers we've had or, or annoying parents, but there's no habits without self-control, right? Sophia, let's start with you. So I think it's important to start with the understanding that your brain is trying to keep you alive, that it's that's its number one job. And one of the primary ways that it achieves this goal is by helping you save energy. Unfortunately, a lot of the things that make our life meaningful or that we would want to do, uh, such as protect your back, require the expenditure of energy. So you have habits in place already of what you do when you get home from work or what you do when you get up in the morning. And these these back exercises say aren't one of them. So in order to override your existing habit of what you might spend your morning doing, it requires self-control. And so that in neurological language, we talk about engagement of your frontal circuitry. So you can use higher order judgments and reasoning to influence what your body is doing in line with these goals of yours to have a healthy, well-functioning body. So really, I I would say you have habits, whether you like them or not. Self-control is involved in making sure that you're directing your habits towards the end that you want for your life, which is where we get into talking about virtue and what the good is. Like, what are your habits aiming towards? Are they aiming at your comfort and your stasis and lack of expenditure of energy, as most of our habits are a lot of the time? 
or are they aiming at what you have concluded are the highest goods of your life, whether that's family or health or religious meaning, whatever it is? Yeah, that's good. Bradley, anything to add? Well, strictly speaking, you don't need self-control to have habits because you can have bad habits that just pop up that you actually don't want. Right. You need it for good habits, right? Where I see self-control coming into habits is if you want to change them. So Sophia said you can also you can you can override habits often with self-control. Problem is habits are really strong and they they're like it's like fighting somebody who never gets tired. And so the best way I've heard of using self-control in terms of habits is that you use self-control to do things that can change your habits. So habits are rooted in your environment, usually. Something happens and you respond to it in a certain way. Now, maybe it happens in you, maybe it happens outside of you. But you can reorganize your environment to add or, or, or subtract cues for your habits, and that will increase your likelihood of doing them. That involves self-control to make the initial change. But after that, it kind of goes on in, in its own. What's an example of changing your environment such that then the environment does the mm-hmm. work for you and you only need the self-control for the initial change? Okay. So um, have you come across a guy named BJ Fogg? I have not. Okay. He works with habits and he has a book that came out recently called Tiny Habits and he's freaking brilliant about habits and he works a lot with Silicon Valley types. Uh, One of his students used his stuff to create Instagram. So a lot of Silicon Valley people use his stuff to make their products more uh, marketable. He wanted to change his eating habits and uh, I got to spend some time with him. I'm not telling secrets. This is stuff he's written about. So he thought, how do I make this a habit? So he spent a day completely redoing his refrigerator so that he got a whole bunch of really nice glass storage containers. And so when he opens his refrigerator, all he sees are the glass storage containers and the only, the healthy food is in front. The junky food is either not in the fridge or it's in back hidden. And then each Sunday, he and his partner prepare healthy food for the week. So when he's tired, he just opens it up and eats the carrots or the hummus or the whatever, and not the frozen pizzas. So that's an example. It takes some work ahead of time, but you change your environment. And then that changes the cues you get for different habits. So I don't know if the mule analogy just popped up 15 minutes ago. So I don't know if it's going to work, but sort of like it takes some effort to put the saddle and the bags and stuff and all the the cargo on the mule. Once it's on there, uh, it's less work going forward. And so that's self-control to create habits. And are we basically talking about this paper you wrote called The Science of, or I guess it wasn't paper, I think it was a Christianity Today cover story, The Science of Sinning Less, What New Research Reveals About Self-Control and Willpower. Is that, are we into that territory right now? Yeah, it's into that direction. Uh-huh. Sophia, did you read that story? I did, yeah. And were you so proud of your uh, <laughs> un- uncle for his cover story? <laughs> Very proud, proud what, and amazed. What did you? What like? How would you have read that? Kind of from more of a neuroscience background. I thought it was a remarkable articulation of what scientifically is a pretty complex reality. Uh, it's sometimes hard to map the science onto experience, and that's where really it's helpful to have psychologists and social scientists come in and uh, provide that link. There, I really like the image of the elephant and the rider or the mule in this case, um, it can be really helpful for thinking about what kinds of actions upstream we can take so that downstream our body and our brain are working for us. Let's talk a little bit about some Catholic habits. Sophia, from your blog, I pulled some ideas from various articles you've written and you've written about Eucharistic adoration. 
Now, I've got a handful of Catholic listeners, but mostly not. So first of all, what is Eucharistic adoration? So Eucharistic adoration is the practice of praying in adoration, praise, and thanksgiving before a consecrated host. So as Catholics, we believe that Jesus Christ is truly present in body, blood, soul, and divinity in the host that's consecrated at Mass. And for about uh, 600 years now, there's been a practice in the Catholic Church of displaying a host before or after Mass, typically, in a monstrance, which is this elaborate, ornate, precious metal uh, frame, essentially, that gets set up on the altar. And it's usually a silent prayer. Sometimes it's accompanied by vocal prayer or music or that sort of thing as well, but usually silent prayer of adoration. And I found that it's a habit that has really cultivated interior stillness in myself and has really deepened my reverence for the presence of the Lord with me, because you can't spend hours and hours you know, gazing on the host contemplating and adoring and not carry some of that reverence into the rest of your day, whether it's in your approach to mass and and liturgy or in your approach to other people who you know as baptized Christians carry the same presence within them. Let's table for a second the theological claims about the host here. Full disclosure, I can get pretty far to real presence, but I do it in kind of like a panentheistic, liberal backdoor kind of a way, as in the entire universe is within God. And so it's not going to be satisfying theologically, but that's not, I don't want to argue about that. I want to talk about what's going on neurologically. So we'll use this as an example. So you spend a certain amount of time just praying, sort of gazing at the Eucharistic host, which you will then take when you take the Eucharist uh, in mass or you just took it or whatever. You'll take it whenever you take it. And that is the other bit here is that that's the center of the of the mass service, as well as for Episcopals and Anglicans and Orthodox, the high church traditions, the Eucharist is the center, whereas for Protestants, usually the sermon is the center or in various, you know, there's various takes on that. So you have the center of the service is already dedicated to taking the Eucharist, uh, which I love, by the way. And then you've got this additional layer of, I'm going to spend this time in prayer over this thing in front of this thing. How would you like what's going on at a neurological level? Like, regardless of tabling for the moment, whether or not there is anything special about the host, mm-hmm. how is it effective as a as a practice? So I would say there are probably two primary components if we look at it through a neurological lens. One, and this is backed by a number of neuroimaging studies of different prayer practices, not just Roman Catholic. One is the relational perspective. And uh, time and again, studies have shown and anecdotal evidence supports that silent prayer is a dialogue with God that activates similar brain regions as conversation with a loved one. So basically you have a mental representation, if you want to use that language, of God that you're engaging with as you are in his presence or if you are thinking about him. Um, now I would go further and say there's actually a real presence there. It's not just it's not just a mental representation, but it's certainly mediated by a mental representation. So one of the values of Eucharistic adoration in that perspective is that you have face-to-face time with this presence. It makes it more immediate for your brain to recognize and remember that that presence is there. So we could say that it's an environmental stimulus that favors the activation of certain neural circuits, the same ones that I would say lead to 
my peace, my joy, my growth in love. So it's really important to have that presence in front of you, just like it is, you know, it's a difference between writing someone a letter or talking to them on the phone versus having them in front of you. Um, and the second neurological perspective I would have on Eucharistic adoration is the absence of other salient stimuli. So we don't have noise, we don't have bright lights, we don't have other environmental stimuli that could either distract your attention or could enable you to avoid confronting the silence within you. When you take that away, uh, your brain is no longer overstimulated, things can settle, what is actually inside can rise to the surface. So in the brain, we would talk about more awareness of limbic activity, more awareness of your emotions more awareness of a subcortical activity. So these subconscious thoughts and desires that you may be having. In spiritual terms, we would say this is really helpful for discernment because you're not looking at the people around you. You're not listening to music. You're not thinking about what you have to do that evening or what you have to make for dinner, but you can really just be present to what's inside of you and where your heart is leading you. So I would say these are the two primary benefits of Eucharistic adoration from a neurological perspective, the relational one and the silence, the absence of stimulation. So Bradley, this just makes me think of also in the Protestant tradition, you know, I'm thinking of Richard Foster and Celebration of Discipline, his classic book going through the the various historical Christian spiritual disciplines. And in his thing about meditation or silent prayer, I don't remember which one it is. Those are kind of similar chapters. He talks about how like we love our pets, but the pet should not be in the room. And, you know, he, he gives these really practical posture advice and it's this kind of stuff that the first time you read one of these sort of practical guides to a certain kind of contemplative practice, either in the Christian tradition or just basic mindfulness or something like that, it's always kind of like jarring because that's the kind of stuff that we don't think matters, especially if we grew up in like a highly abstract Protestant environment and a, a less kind of embodied, more ritualistic high church environment. But that stuff really does matter, right? In terms of the way that like, we get this stuff out of the way so that this process can take place. I'm, I'm curious what you think about that. Well, I would agree. I, I think that's pretty straightforward and, and accurate. An interesting twist in it is how do smartphones and computers and all that electronics play into it? Because in the last decade or so, for the first time in human history, humans have been able to not be alone. Every other decade in, in, in our history, there were times when you're walking to the mailbox or you're walking to the farm or you're dragging a woolly mammoth across the plains or whatever you do, where you're by yourself and you can be bored. And now that doesn't have, it doesn't have to happen. You can have your phone in front of you all the time. And I was talking to one of my students in my social well-being class about this. And she said that when she loses her phone, she said in, in her words, she just goes crazy. It's just, it's really, really hard. So suddenly we have a lot of that space that we used to use for sort of embodied presence as we're talking about, gone. Or at the very least, we have to fight for it and carve it out actively rather than being given it naturally as a function of daily life. I feel like that is the big change between previous generations and our, ourselves. And and then I'm sure, Sophia, you have an opinion on this. The age you are when you get that first smartphone what what kind of a role does that play? I, I didn't get an iPhone until I was 25, 26, which means my prefrontal cortex was fully fused to the rest of my, no, 29, 28. 
29. The more 29. research that comes out, okay. the later it the keeps age getting gets pushed back. Crash. Whatever. Yeah. I was almost there. <laughs> uh, you know, it's almost there. But like my five month old son, we can already tell that there's something going on with these boxes that mom and dad hold. And we're very <laughs> careful to not show it to him because of this worry. So, but just can you speak a little bit from your developmental background? What are the differences between the age at which this phenomena becomes a reality to you? Absolutely. I think the scientific perspective is really essential here in order to not be alarmist, but to really understand what the dangers are because the brain is developing throughout childhood, adolescence, and early adulthood, and it develops in an experience-dependent manner. So it depends on certain normative stimuli from the environment for neurons to be born, to connect, to form circuits, as you said, for certain brain regions to mature, brain regions that are really essential for emotional and physical and cognitive functioning later in life. So it's really important. Now, what are those environmental stimuli that are essential? The most important one, hands down, is a relationship with a primary caregiver. The eye-to-eye contact, the touch, the dialogue, not just in the first year of life, but throughout childhood, that is an essential determinant of healthy brain functioning. So I think the most dangerous thing when it comes to technology is that it replaces face-to-face interactions with other people. That's when I would really worry because it favors changes in the brain that makes them expect very fast-paced stimuli, very multimodal stimuli. So you'll have bright colors and flashing lights together with sounds. And, um, but interestingly, these aren't things that are contingent on the behavior of the child. So if you're watching a television program, it's not going to engage in dialogue with you, no matter what your emotional state is, no matter what your questions are, it's not going to change. And that's very different from what we evolved on, you know, which is relationships with our family members. And as my uncle Brad was saying, uh, also time in silence, time for creativity, for free play. Those are really essential things, especially in the outdoors, that just because of evolution, our health depends on it uh, in a very, very real and very serious way. So I'm not advocating all parents should ban smartphones in their house, but just a real attentiveness to what forms of interaction and recreation it's replacing. I think that's probably the most important question that I would have parents ask themselves. If people are want to spend more time on on that cluster of topics, I would recommend the Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff book, The Coddling of the American Mind. The title is sort of a little bit inflammatory, and it's about the college protests and the coasts and stuff. But the bulk of the book is actually more about kind of what we were just talking about. And they get into the free play movement and sort of what we know about the effects of smartphones on mental health and all that. You brought something up, though, that I I wanted to ask a clarifying question on, and I don't know that the research exists yet, and perhaps this will come out of COVID, but now that the technology for video chatting and stuff like that is so good, do we know of, you know, let's say my father, who is in California and has not been able to get up to Seattle, and then we have not gone to California because of the higher caseload there, has not gotten to meet my son, but they can sometimes FaceTime. And, you know, that's kind of the only time we let him see a screen. He might be too young, but that is not the same as a television program because it, like we're doing it right now. And we're basically having a very similar conversation to what we would have in person, although not, you know, I don't know, 90% similar or something. Is there anything out there on that yet? 
So not directly, I would say there's no, you know, longitudinal randomized controlled trial that's comparing, you know, in-person interactions to FaceTime. But there are studies that show that the more communicative dimensions that you have at play to make it like a naturalistic interaction. So if you have gaze and emotion on the face, which is what we have with each other now, and sometimes gestures when it comes into the frame, that's really helpful. It's not as helpful as having the person's posture in front of you um, and being able to pick up on inflections and movements that you would miss otherwise. But it's certainly, it's not black and white, technology is evil, relationships are always positive. I mean, I study abuse. I know that that's not the case. It's more of a continuum and it's really, you can make, you know, to go back to our conversation about habits, you can make small changes here and there to try to make your use of technology work for you in these areas. So, Sophia, you could you could come in on this as well, but I want to start with Brad here. When you were answering the question about Eucharistic adoration, you're talking about the research that shows that the same parts of a brain that are activated by interpersonal communication light up with uh, certain kinds of silent prayer. And Brad, that makes me think of a book I'm positive you're familiar with, which is Tanya Lerman's When God Talks Back. Her long study of the vineyard movement and the type of conversational prayer that movement trains its members in. And so I just kind of wanted to throw that out there and and have you put your thoughts about that into dialogue with this sort of scientific research about those modules also, you know, being similarly activated. Well, I can't speak to what's being activated in the brain. I'm pretty sure there's one between ears, but that's as far as my knowledge goes about uh, (laughs) neuroscience. And as far as Tanya Lerman, um, I had a chance to speak up in Seattle uh, at a conference where she was also speaking among vineyard scholars or vineyard pastors and people interested in vineyard studies. And um, I was actually very involved in the vineyard back in the day when John Wimber was doing his thing. And I was actually on some of his prayer teams back in the day when he was doing his stuff. So it was really interesting for me. I don't know what to make of social science research of charismatic experiences, having experienced a lot of both. Uh, For me, it's still sort of a two things that coexist that I'm not sure what to make of together. Having said that, when I meet vineyard people, I always impress them that I had met John Wimber and I got to pray with them once and stuff like that. So I don't know if that's much of an answer to your question. I guess what it's making me think of is, so I read that book, or I guess I've read three quarters of it or something. And I, I've been putting off having her on because I don't want to sound stupid, but I have to eventually interview her because it's just too good for, you know, this kind of show. But my own prayer practice is not dissimilar from the stuff that she describes in the book. And, and Sophia, you were saying, I don't think it's just as if there's another presence there that, you know, these brain regions light up. I think that there really is a presence there. And that is, of course, my view as well as a person of faith who engages in prayer. I don't think I'm merely engaging in a conversation with myself and I'm self-deceived. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it, of course. But so there's something really interesting about that. It's hard to know how to frame the question, but God is not a person in the way that we're persons. And so if I was interacting with God, how would we expect it to show up in the brain? Like, what would it look like? This is the kind of thing that I was hoping would happen. Just something interesting would come up. I don't even know how to phrase the question. Either of you feel free to dive in on any of that that connects to anything that you're thinking. I think in terms, I think we have to talk about the breadth of prayer practices throughout the Christian tradition. If we're going to get any kind of hypothesis out there about what it might be doing in the brain, you know, there's 
prayer of contrition and repentance. There's prayer of thanksgiving and praise. There's prayer of adoration. There's prayer of intercession. So just like in any relationship, the one that I have with my uncle, we might talk about any range of things in one conversation. It's the same with God. You know, you might be expressing sorrow at one moment and praising his glory the next. And these are going to activate different brain regions, which of course doesn't mean that you're engaging with a different you know, subject, the, the whom of your prayer is always God. It remains God. But because, you know, the functional specialization of the brain doesn't mean that experiences are relegated to one area of your brain. All of your brain is being used all of the time. Otherwise, it would die and you would die. So if I were to propose a hypothesis in answer to your question, I would say, I think that the brain regions involved span the cortex and subcortical areas, but it would be especially concentrated around those higher order centers that are involved with thinking about the future, thinking about abstract concepts um, like justice, beauty, goodness, but also those that are involved in um, empathy, self-understanding, compassion and awareness of others, and the emotions. I think that, you know, any mature Christian faith is one that integrates all of the aspects of the person's psyche. And none of those are off the table when it comes to speaking with God. But I think there's something really beautiful about that. You know, as a Catholic, I believe that in the incarnation, when Christ took on human flesh, that he didn't just take on the appearance of a human being. He became fully human, suffered his passion with all of the emotion and the pain that one of us would have felt if we were being crucified. And and yet he was God, right? And so how appropriate that, yes, as you said, you know, God is not a human person like us. However, we were made in his image and we can speak to him in the person of Jesus Christ, who was fully human, is fully human. So I think it's really appropriate that our whole brain would be involved in in a kind of dialogue of that kind. Yeah, the, the whole brain being involved also makes me feel better about I don't know, I, I guess just like a larger view of God. And I'm my guess is we might disagree on some of the attributes that we think God has or doesn't have or whatever. And I, I don't care. I don't, I don't care about arguing about that. It doesn't bother me either way. I don't hold that stuff very tightly, but it kind of relates to what you were saying, Brad, of the difficulty of studying this stuff, right? Like if you want to do really good peer reviewed research, you need really tight parameters, and I remember I was interviewing Carol Zaleski, who's a co-author of uh, this fantastic book, Prayer, A History. And she told this kind of this kind of funny anecdote that her son said. He was reading some of these, there are these famous studies, I don't know, five, five, ten years ago. They had some people pray for cancer patients, and they had some other cancer patients that no one was praying for them. And so it's supposed to sort of show if this kind of prayer, intercessory prayer, is effective at some statistical level. And the kid was like, the problem with that is like, suppose one person found out they were doing this study and was like, I'm going to pray for those other people. Like you can't, there's no way. It's not like I gave you the placebo and I gave you the Lexapro, right? It's like, if it's something like that, you, you just, there are real constraints. So, so something as esoteric as these people were prayed for, and we, we can guarantee these other people weren't prayed for is bullshit. Like you can't, you can't do a study like that. There are limits. But what I found interesting about the Lerman work specifically was this idea of training our expectations. So people in the vineyard movement, they expect to be able to have communicative prayer with God. I read... Madame Guyon's Experiencing the Depths of Jesus Christ from the 16 or 1800s or whenever that's from five, six years ago. 
I tried it out. I expected it to work. Here's a framework. And then it did work, right? So that is interesting. I think separate from the difficulty of, you know, nailing this stuff down in all its specificity. So I don't know if Brad, if you have any thoughts about the blabbering that just came out in the last three minutes. There, I'll approach the first part, which is maybe the less interesting part. And it's just the research aspect. As social scientists, we tend to think in terms of what we can measure. And we tend not to think as much about what we can't measure. So we almost conflate measurability with reality. And I've seen something like that when I moved from survey data to field experiments with my research. Suddenly, I had to start thinking through whole different problems because it was a different method. So there's this neat interplay between our theory and our methods. And people don't realize it goes back the other way. So if we're in the habit of measuring things that can be objectively measured as on or off or yes or no, there's a lot of things we can't measure. If we can't measure them, then we start thinking, well, maybe they're not real. Now you can get around that with Lerman, you know, she measured people's experiences as they as self-reported. So you can, you can measure that, but that's, you're accepting the subjectivity of it at that point. And she's looking for patterns and experiences. Yeah. Self-report measures sometimes all we have. And I think that that kind of stuff can be most helpful in a longitudinal way, you know, and you, I'm sure you found this with survey data. So Pew Research can ask the exact same question over 40 or 50 years. And even if we're not totally sure that people know how to best, you know, most adequately answer the question one time, well, you can compare it over the decades and then you get a, a very good sense of trend lines that, that really do that that's sort of like it doesn't really matter because people's inability to self-report is constant over time and then we just look at the change but if you're just doing well i just did this one thing and i'm just going to get self-report measures well how well do we know ourselves and that's why the neuroimaging studies they, they try and get around that right by like this area is lighting up this area is not lighting up and it's a more accurate description um sophia anything to add before we take a little break I think I would add one caveat, which is that uh, it's pretty easy to lie with neuroimaging data. And I think this is something that the general public does not understand. And pop science articles pretty do a very horrible job of explaining. It's pretty easy to go fishing in neuroimaging data to find brain regions that light up the way that you want them to just by adjusting your filtering parameters or your acquisition parameters you know, I've done it, not not to publish, but just to see how easy it is to do. And it's it's pretty simple. So I think that it needs to start with really well-defined concepts, clear questions, and with integrity each step of the way, because social science is not the only discipline within academia where your questions and your methods uh, really influence what you find and and that this is a self-reinforcing loop that science is just as much that way and I think that needs to be publicized yeah and we're getting a little in the weeds but this is why you know a meta literature review over a couple decades it, it carries with it a much higher probability of being true than a single study everything in between right different gradations of of layer levels of confidence. And uh, one thing that I'm, I'm finding as I am trained in interpreting some of this research, you know, psychological research, at least in my own doctoral program, is learning to think in terms of that. Like, it is a kind of a virtue of I don't know if it's maybe intellectual humility. Uh, you guys might have uh, we're going to we're going to get into virtues basically after the break. But 
to wrap this up here with that language, there is a kind of an epistemological virtue of learning how and when to put varying levels of confidence on certain findings. So I see a single article that is like something really intriguing and it's like something I'm very interested in. Well, I I could make the mistake of placing way too much confidence in this one finding. Whereas I go, oh, here's a meta analytic review of a thousand PTSD, you know, research articles. And here are the through lines. Okay. That I will take to the bank. I mean, that's, that's the best info we have at the time of that study. And it's all the people's biases and their methodological issues sort of coming out in the wash over time. And here's the stuff that comes through. Of course, it will be more uh, circumspect in its claims, right? The more, the more you have some competing evidence and stuff. So I don't know. Any, anything to add on that? I think we'll probably all agree. This is common sense. Okay. Well, let's take a little break. I just, you know, you got to get, I got to get another minute or two of my own voice in there before the break. So we'll take a little break (laughs) and we come back, we're going to bring virtue into this. And I also want to make sure we spend a little bit more time on prayer as a habit and, and what we know about habitual prayer practices. This is where I talk about the Patreon campaign where you can support this show financially Monthly, it is $5 a month, although there is a sliding scale. Email me about that if that would apply to you. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. Uh, with the Patreon membership, you get two exclusive episodes per month for patrons only, as well as access to the patron only Facebook group. And man, I've got to say, a Facebook group, I know I'm biased, but I think that this is basically objective. A Facebook group with some price of admission is far, far superior to a Facebook group that is free to anybody to join. And I have joined many of these sort of deconstruction-flavored Facebook groups. There are a bunch. Some of them center around podcasts. Others don't. Uh, And I like our group much, much better. And I don't think that that's me. There's a little bit of a tone setting that I try and do, of course. It kind of matches the show. I think it is mostly because... Uh, I don't know. The people are great, but also there's a psychological, um, I don't know, something going on when you, when you have to pay a little bit of money, even if it's not a lot, everybody takes it more seriously and everybody is less flippant and, uh, more thoughtful. And, uh, I, I think that most patrons would really agree with that anyway. So, uh, the most recent episode, my mom was visiting to spend time with our young son, who's now almost seven months. And, uh, we got to talking about end times and the lack of graciousness in end times teaching. She was raised by my grandfather who was obsessed with the end times. Uh, he's no longer with us now. This was one of the defining characteristics of his life. I have actually a fair amount of bitterness toward him as a person, which comes up a little bit in our conversation, something I'm working through. She obviously spent a lot more time with him than I did, but it led to just sort of a, a generational conversation, a conversation about, yeah, great graciousness, uh, the gospel, uh, end times confidence, end times end times obsession. It was a really fun conversation. I'm very glad that we decided to come downstairs and record it instead of just having it on the couch while Soren was napping, which is what we were initially doing. Okay, I'll stop talking about this. We'll get back to the episode now, but it's patreon.com slash Dan Coke to sign up. There's a link in the show notes. Again, email me for that sliding scale. Um, if that's something that you need right now and no shame, 
it is a batshit batshit crazy time that we are living in here, uh, at least in the states. Okay, I guess actually all over the world. So, don't feel bad about that. Okay, I'll shut up. What is the difference between a habit and a virtue? So, with a habit, we think of a repeated behavior, but it's morally neutral. So. You can pray. That's a habit that has more implications. You can spin your pen in your hand, like some of my students do during lecture, in this really cool, fast way, and that's morally neutral. Whereas with virtues, we tend to think of behaviors that you should be doing or identifications of sort of value-based in habits. In、uh, social psychology, there's been an interesting trend, sort of towards habits, or I'm, I'm sorry, virtues. Uh, but not completely. So Martin Seligman, back in、uh, not not that long ago, did a review of a number of religious and sort of spiritual traditions and came up with six virtues:、uh, wisdom, courage, humanity, transcendence, justice, and moderation. Once he did this in positive psychology, my impression is a lot of people went, "Huh, that's interesting," because in academics we don't really have a lot of room for these virtues as guiding things. So if you stood up and said to a group of people, "You should be courageous," and by this persistent, honest, have zest for living, be brave, or you should be moderate,、uh, forgiveness, prudence, self-control, I don't think it would go over well. So in that sense, positive psychology is focused much more on what makes people better rather than what is good. Now habits play into both of those, but my sense is that well-being gets a lot more attention because we can all agree that well-being is is goodish and that we want it. But what is a virtue other than just a few things that everyone agrees on that come up in the news a lot? They're kind of awkward in in research. And honestly, if it hadn't been Martin Seligman who founded the field of positive psychology, I don't think they would have been in positive psychology nearly as much as they are. Sort of like. But yeah, faith in God. Yeah, faith in Martin Seligman. Yeah, it's interesting. Well-being is the kind of thing that plays better in a pluralistic society. As soon as you start saying, "I think we should all be temperate," <laughs> you know, or whatever, it's like, "Whoa, buddy, get your priest's hands off my daughter," or something like. I don't want to. I don't know where this temperance comes from. I don't think that's a virtue. I don't agree, and it can become a kind of like a prayers in public school kind of a thing if you get. Too much away from a sort of universally agreed upon definition of well-being, but then what is universally agreed upon, by virtue of it being universally agreed upon, will be less than something that might have a smaller subset of people who share more ideologically and can, I don't know, are willing to put more resources toward some kind of end goal for themselves or for their community or for their children or something like that. Is that an inescapable tension? That basically, just if you're doing broad science in a Western democracy that is empirically pluralistic, that you're just kind of saddled with that, or is there a way forward from that inherent tension? I don't see a way forward in a practical way because there's another twist, and that is virtues, as we commonly talk about them, tend to focus on the individual. That you can bring them up to the corporate level or the group level, but it really is pitched at the individual. And with a virtue, you're saying this is how you live a good life. This is what you should do. 
Some social scientists would push back on that and say, no, the problem's at the structural level, not the individual. And by talking about what people should do, you're ignoring structure. And so there's a whole other complication to it. And that's the kind of thing that it, it's almost like a breaching test where you don't know that there are norms there until you violate them and people get upset. That's interesting. But there is one way that I think is a, it's a small slice, but there is a way forward. So I was actually just interviewing this guy, Dr. John Petit, who's a psychiatrist, academic psychiatrist. And, and he brought up this book, The Virtuous Psychiatrist. I can't remember the, the two authors' names. But I'm thinking about this in terms of my own formation, you know, towards becoming a clinician myself and a, and a licensed psychologist. It might be true that you don't want to lay the individual burden on all your clients, right? Like in some sense, you do want to help them inculcate virtue, but you also want to advocate for them when they are the unjust recipients of, of bad systems, right? Mm -hmm. But when you're forming yourself as a clinician, right? Th there's no point in saying, well, I won't actually end up being that good of a therapist because these systems are unjust. Like that's not how you go about it. You're choosing to be formed in a certain practice. And you see this with lawyers. You see this with other sort of professional engagement where you're, if you're learning to be a, a scientific researcher, you are basically submitting to a certain kind of formation to be a kind of a person who can do this work well. And you might think about how systems played a role in getting you here, but you're not going to blame systems for like setting up your study poorly, or at least you shouldn't. And if you do, you're a bad scientist while you can advocate for more just systems in the world, of course. Right. So I don't know, maybe that is a way where could like people in these formative programs do research on themselves who have already bought in to trying to become virtuous and sort of, can we skirt some of those collective societal problems? Am I just, is, am I being pie in the sky here? Well, I would, I would actually broaden what you say and say that, so, so, so you bring up a good point that the individual loops back up onto structure. So it's not just structure affects the individual. So by studying how people develop, we can study then how structure forms because it's in part the aggregation of people, but also how people can change the structure. And so that's the way I tend to look at it with uh, in my current research on purpose is that if you want to change the world, don't talk about the world, start talking by yourself and figure out who you are and what you want. That gives you the motivation, the, the, the efficacy, the wherewithal to move forward and then change the world. So simply sitting and saying, here's what's wrong with world A, B, and C, whether or not you're accurate, and even if you are accurate, isn't going to either change the world or help you. But if you can help yourself, that then that puts you in a, a place to change the world. So it's certainly not either or. It's interesting amongst Christians, which side we tend to miss. Do we miss the structural side or we, do we miss the individual side? Evangelicals miss the structural side. I can't, let me give yes. you the short answer. <laughs> but yeah. conversely, plenty miss the individual side. Right. Sure. Yeah. Uh, that's the downfall of sort of the, the both historic and current, you know, social gospel movements where that's basically the, the only focus, right? Sophia, let's get you back in the conversation here. You have a article uh, on your blog that's called Your Habits Will Save You. But since I know that you're a Roman Catholic, I know that, you know, what saves us is the grace of God through Jesus Christ. What do you mean when you say your habits will save you? 
So your habits will save you. I'm not Pelagian, so I'm not trying to say that we don't need the grace of God to save us. We cannot earn our salvation through our own efforts at moral rectitude. But I think that habits are indispensable for our salvation because God's grace works with our nature and our nature is to be a habitual being. So historically, Christians Ooh, Let's have- hold on. Let's let's pause there. Let's just marinate in that. Our habits, say that again. Our habits are indispensable for our salvation because grace works with our nature, not against our nature. Okay. And our nature is to be a habitual being. So biologically, psychologically, yeah. we are habitual creatures. So if God's grace is going to work with my nature, it's going to work with my habits. Really quick, give me the alternative there. What is the view that would say God works against our nature? Like, Let's just, for the sake of devil's advocate. So yeah, devil's advocate, but you've got uh, plenty of people throughout history on on your side there. Basically, that God's grace would save me despite myself, that he would sanctify me precisely in as much as he churns me into something that I'm not. Something I'm not, right, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, Thomas Merton said, you know, to become like Christ is to become truly yourself. So as you become more Christ-like, you don't become less unique. In a sense, you become more unique, but all the bullshit that you have accumulated from pain or bad choices or whatever, that gets pushed away. And then like who God really made you to be is who stands before Christ. Like, you know, to the extent that you get there, you're more yourself. And I think that is super powerful. Now we can move on and you can use that to answer the question as you were going to answer it. So God's grace is what saves us, but he saves us with our nature, through our nature. So the process of transformation of our sanctification, our path to holiness, to becoming saints, to becoming Christ-like, whatever language you want to use, it's going to involve the transformation of our habits, not necessarily in discrete and measurable ways all the time, but in reforming what our tendencies are. So instinctively, do we tend towards virtue or do we tend towards vice in a particular domain of our life? It's important to note that you can't be normatively neutral when it comes to this territory because a lack of commitment, a lack of direction of your habits or your efforts is implicitly an answer in the negative. So to go back to what you said about prayer practices, and if you go into a prayer practice expecting something, you're more likely to find something. I would say the same thing about faith in God or about sanctification. Uh, You need a positive working hypothesis. You need to go into it saying, I'm going to see if God is there in prayer. I'm going to see if this will make me a better person. If you go into it with a negative hypothesis, you're never going to find an answer. But if you go into it with a positive hypothesis, you might not find an answer, in which, you can ca- in which case you can conclude no, but you will find one if there is one there. So this is a long way of saying, you know, we need to be open to the workings of grace in our life by learning about behavior change, by reforming our environment to favor the restructuring of our habits, to imitating those around us who we see living in a virtuous way. All of these things that I guess I would say facilitate the working of grace, right? And that's where our participation comes in. It's it's God transforming us, but we're the ones who are actively his collaborators, which is such an exciting adventure. I mean, crazy that that literally the God of the universe wants my freedom, my initiative to be involved in his work in my life. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think of neuroplasticity as basically the physical foundation of the theological idea of co-creation with God, 
that if the whole thing were determined and if our brains could not rewire themselves, then there would be no co-creation going on whatsoever. But the fact that there is that, you know, whether it's related to quantum uncertainty or who knows, but it, we have the experience of having some measure of free will. Is, isn't neuroplasticity basically the physical reality that underlies this entire conversation about habit formation and being able to move something from my back to the mule is like the mule can then dig out new footpaths for it to walk each time. And am I getting that right, by the way, just neurologically? Yeah, so it is. Neuroplasticity is your brain's ability to change. And without it, you couldn't learn anything. You couldn't store any new memories. You couldn't even remember a new person once you've met them. So it's really indispensable um, to your life. And I think that when it comes to the virtues, just take, for instance, justice. To have a habit of justice, you need neuroplasticity. Habitually choosing the just act over the unjust one, you're going to rewire your brain to help you choose the just act over time. But I think it's important to know also that that there's a limit to this, that, you know, we can't just boil it down to neuroplasticity, that that God's grace is ineffable and mysterious. And, you know, I don't I don't want to just paint it in physical terms, that this might be the physical reality that he typically uses to work in our lives. But this does not preclude, uh, you know, that he might directly infuse love into your heart for a person when you don't have it within yourself to love them or whatever else it is. I just want to say, I wanted to give a concrete example from my own life about the justice thing. Um, it's actually, it's not about me. It's about my wife. She has gotten very into the zero waste movement and, you know, reusing and recycling things rather than wasting them. And she has instituted habits for our household that I have accepted. You know, I, I guess I could have thrown a fit and I didn't, but all I really did was say, okay, we can start doing it that way. But I now, as a result of that, have 10 or 15 habits around waste reduction that I didn't have before. She's probably got 40 of them, you know, to my 15. But it really is pretty easy now. Like, I'm just used to certain kinds of containers I know need to be very quickly scrubbed out before they are put in this bin or else they won't get recycled the way you think they will be. Or, you know, this stuff is compostable and... And now we have one in the backyard and these things can go there and the other ones can go in the bin and, you know, but it is more in line with my values. So before she got into the practical zero waste movement, I was already fretting about climate change and my own moral, you know, uh, part in it and my culpability for it, you know, at some fractional level. And then she was the one who gave us really sort of the language for one of the main ways we can fight this within our family. Of course, there are other ways if we flew less, if we, you know, whatever we ended up buying an electric car, but that was also because it was like very cool to drive it. So, you know, I don't know how much virtue is involved in that choice. I drive a brand new golf. I mean, it's so cool. I've always wanted one and it is electric. Okay. But that was just a little side tangent. I wanted to, I wanted to respond to what you were saying in the more broad sense, Sophia, which is, there is like a simple and obvious way of describing this, but then there are the there are the difficulties of the real world. So the simplest way is basically to say, look, let's say 20 years from now, I am far more the kind of person I want to be. I want to be better at being quiet and listening to other people. I want to be better at, you know, not needing so much time for myself and being more willing to spend my time with my kids. 
I don't want to get into arguments about politics with people. I want to listen to them or change the subject. That's the kind of person I want to be. The obvious way to say it is to the extent that I get there, it is largely down to the habits I will have inculcated. So that's, that's the simple way. But you brought up imitating people that we look up to, right? And now's where it starts to get messy. So uh, for instance, the day that we are recording this, Four days ago on Monday, the episode that came out was the one about Jean Vanier, my former number one living spiritual hero, who it turns out was a serial sexual predator alongside some very, very good things that he did and very beautiful ways he saw God and saw the world and saw, you know, the disabled and all of that stuff. That's tricky. Uh, If I had followed him too much, I would then be in danger of harming people. So we get into sort of like, in the one sense, it's totally obviously true. And then in the in the practicality of it, it's many minefields in every direction. I just kind of wanted to toss that out for either of you to reflect on. The larger topic here that we're getting at is habits and morality. And what's interesting for me is that, and this is implied by what by what each of you are saying, is that if our habits are working at cross purposes to our values, they usually win because they're so powerful. And if nothing else, they create a lot of conflict. So when we are living in ways that doesn't fit with our values, it's often our habits that are the culprits. So there's a saying in the business world that every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets. And if we have certain ways we treat people, certain ways we think, certain ways that we act that don't fit with our values, they're not random problems parachuting out of the sky, something's reinforcing them, something's pushing them forward, and there will probably be an habitual element to it. And so that's why cataloging our habits from the perspective of our values and making adjustments as needed is probably a good thing to do. And in a way, the working out of our salvation is the continual revising of our habits to align them to what we believe and to what we value the most. And that gets at what you're talking about, Sophia, with our participation in grace. Let's get a little practical here. You both have spent quite a bit of time thinking about hacks. So you have some habit hack posts on your blog, uh, Sophia, and then Brad, you have, you know, multiple studies that look at sort of spiritual experiences, disciplines, whatever. Let's get practical. We got 10 minutes left here. Let's focus on what can we do to increase the kind of habits we want, the kind that al- that do align with our goals, uh, as opposed to sort of unthinkingly taking part in the habits that maybe don't. I think one key Brad mentioned earlier, which is the cue behavior reward cycle. Um, so be attentive to what environmental cues you have and what rewards that you're using to reinforce the behaviors that you do want to engage in. Obviously, a precondition for all of this is self-reflection. What are your values? Right. How do you get there? What behaviors do you want to cultivate? But once so you've let's, identified- Let's get that, let's just operation, not operationalize, let's concretize. I'm driving home and I'm feeling sad about something. So as I get off the freeway, I pull into the McDonald's drive-thru. If I had been feeling happy, I would have gone straight home unless I was very hungry or something, but I want to distract myself from some negative feeling. Maybe I'm tired. Maybe I'm sad. Maybe I'm frustrated. Maybe I'm listening to a podcaster who's doing a better job than I do and I'm feeling ornery. And so I get myself my McDonald's meal 
it's enjoyable for the few minutes I'm eating it. And then I feel a little bit gross afterwards. Okay. Let's use that as the example. The cue is the negative feeling or it's that I see the golden arches. I come up to my exit. What's the cue? It's all of those things really. So you could choose depending on who you are. One of those cues might be stronger than the others. You could try upstream might be the most effective. You could use not even the emotion as the cue, but whatever caused the emotion as the cue. If you know that Mm. it's going to give rise to negative feelings, you can have in place habits that help you address those feelings, get curious about them, take them to a journal or a friend or uh, calming music or a run or whatever it is that you want to use to cope with those feelings or process them. Um, So really just, I guess, being ruthless about identifying how far upstream you can go to where the behavior really starts. Because the further downstream you get, if you're trying to fight it when you're already in line for your burger, it's going to be a lot harder. So, and just to be clear, the behavior is I get the McDonald's and I eat it. And then the reward now McDonald's is very good about their food being rewarding in the short term, right? Like they literally, no one has spent more money ever, maybe in the world at making a single item more addictive than probably the Big Mac or something like that. The McDonald's cheeseburger, they have the R and D money is at least at the cheapest possible cost or whatever, however you want to fill out. It's one of the most well-researched items in the world is a McDonald's cheeseburger, right? And so it's going to reward me. They have made sure of it, right? But I love what you're saying about how far upstream can we go? And this is really where therapy comes in for, for some of these things. You know, I started therapy when I found myself in a situation that distressed me. And I was like, how did I even end up in this situation? I don't, I didn't do anything incredibly uh, destructive in that situation, but it was possible. And I, I was like, well, how did this even get here? So I was like wanting to go upstream, right? And so that my life would be better and I would not find myself in these situations. Other than therapy, what's another way to go upstream? So, so there's going upstream. And let me give you a variation of that. And that is, um, you asked, what are ways of being strategic with habits? I would say do it in two steps that often work very well together. First, figure out which habit change will bring about the most good in your life. So Gary Keller wrote this wonderful book called The One Thing. And he says, the question to ask is, what's the one thing that by doing it makes everything else either easier or necessary? Upstream is a subset of that, but there can also be sort of lateral steps. For example, maybe if you want to have a better spiritual life, the habit you have to start with is getting to bed earlier because that'll make so many other things easier. Or maybe it's praying in the morning or, or something. So I'd say that's the first thing is to be hyper strategic with which habit you pick. Pick the habit that'll give you the most bang for the buck. The second thing is to start small, right? Because what happens is we get all excited about habits. It's like, yay, today's the day I start training to be a triathlete. And it goes great for a, a week and then we you know, sprain our ankle or something or we, we get tired. It's much better to start small. So if we want to end up, we've talked about mindfulness. If we, don't want to, if we want to end up spending 45 minutes a day doing mindfulness practice, well, start off with three minutes, but do it every day and figure out what the cue is, figure out what the reward is, and then bump it up to six and then nine and 15. It's easier to go from one to two than it is zero to one. So if you can establish the little habit you can build on it. And that's that's the logic of BJ Fogg's work. And so those two combined of bang for the buck habit and start small and let it build will get you 
crazy cool places. I would add one thing, which is that we are social creatures and we evolved in groups and on a theological level, we're made for communion and community with others. You know, these are things that you can pursue on your own, but that, you know, we're wired to pursue together with others. And so if you can surround yourself by people who inspire you and are walking with you on this journey, that makes it not only easier, but really truer and more beautiful. And I think for me, this is why I understand that my belonging to the church is so essential, that I cannot work out my salvation on my own. And this is to go back to your point about Jean Bonnier. This is why it's so scandalizing and heartbreaking when things like this do come out, because I was looking to him as a companion on my journey to salvation. And so to have this come out and to see that I couldn't follow him in the way that I thought, you know, in in one sense, it's a corrective because as a Christian, I believe that my gaze should be fixed on Christ and not anyone on this earth who might, you know, claim to represent him but him primarily. And then together with others, I walk towards him. Um, but at the same time, it, it, it leaves room for hope because I see within myself the very same tendencies to sin and destruction that are present in, in everyone who does something evil. And so if it was just cue behavior reward, you know, I'd, I'd be in hell in a minute, you know? And so that's why for me, it's so important to say, I see in community that I can receive forgiveness and I can receive grace. And so I can start again because otherwise, as soon as I fail, you know, in my millionth endeavor to reform my life or create a new habit, I would just end up wallowing in self-pity and self-hatred. And so I think companionship is really essential for both these reasons, both the inspiration, but also the forgiveness and the mercy that you receive that enables you to start over and over again, because even when you start small and, and even when you do, know about your psychology and your biology, this is still a really hard process and and we do fail. That's just, you're going to fail and you have to accept that. Fantastic. Brad, I, I would imagine you might be familiar with actually some research on, we haven't really talked about this yet, but the the role of the group in kind of habit formation and, and, and uh, all of that. So I tend to approach it from the perspective of behavioral contagion and some writing that, and that I'm doing currently, I use the example of Sophia's mother, my sister. Uh, she keeps a very clean house and especially a very clean kitchen. And I've noticed over the years that when I go visit her and visit Sophia and the other people there, that when I come home, I keep a much cleaner kitchen for two, three weeks afterwards, simply because her behavior has sort of transferred onto me. Research has found that with voting behavior, crime, even obesity, if somebody in your social network, even if you don't know them, becomes obese, that increases your likelihood of being obese. What's so cool about this, earlier we talked about some of the problems with the internet, is that the internet makes it possible to do behavioral contagion with anybody, dead or alive. Right. Yeah. Uh, Jim Rohn, the business speaker, said you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And that sort of gets at what we're talking about. I, I think he overstates it, but there's some truth there. And so who we read and who we talk to and who we think about has a profound impact. So let's take what Sophia said and say, Pick a strategic habit, start small, and then start reading or talking or spending time with people who do that. And you are long on your way to getting that habit effectively. This is really one angle as to why church is effective. I want to say important. I know that people who listen to the show have every possible kind of personal experience with church and 
uh, as someone who is planning to specialize in people with spiritual abuse in their past, I know this is not a one size fits all kind of a conversation, but if you don't, you know, you are, you're, you're sacrificing something that is potentially quite powerful if you do not have a community of like-minded of people with who are directed to the same goals, that's another way we've been talking about it is goal directed behavior. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's commonsensical that if you show up once or twice a week with the same group of people toward the same end, you, you will get closer to that end. I mean, in some sense, it's like stupid. You don't even have to say it. And yet I think, especially in our, hyper-individualistic society that we happen to have been born into here in the States, that is precisely the kind of thing that we can, can easily forget because I don't know, basically all the messaging in our world ignores that for the most part. But then we have wonderful researchers like you guys to remind us that we actually do need each other. And it's interesting how that plays out in the church as well. So we talked earlier about how evangelicals tend to focus on the individual agency it would be a disaster if they didn't also focus on the importance of local churches. So the, the both and matters. You know, if you just focus on just the individual, you lose out on so much. But if you focus on just the group, you also lose out on so much. So I guess we're back to the individual agency and structure, but at the religion, the level of religion. Sophia, any, any uh, final thoughts here before we wrap up? I think final thought is just a word of encouragement to people who find these questions interesting or troubling or provocative because they're grappling in their own life with what it's for, who they are, uh, what they want. I would say it can be a really difficult and and painful even journey, but it's really about what life is. And so I would just encourage people to take it seriously and to not settle for less than what their heart is really made for and to put in all of the hard work and the sacrifices that's required to get there because, um, boy, the joy is worth it. So thank you guys so much for your time. This was such a fun conversation. I'll have a link to each of your websites, Sophia, your blog, Bradley, your, your research site. And so if people want to get in touch with you, that's how they can do it. And, uh, yeah, thank you again. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Dan. This was a fun thing. Thanks to Josh Gilbert for editing the conversation today. If you'd like to become a patron, patreon.com slash Dan Koch. That link is in the notes. Email me about the sliding scale. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. And my editor, Josh, is available for additional podcasts and other kinds of audio and video editing. His email is also in the show notes. We will see you guys next week. See you then.